Hello you filthy animals, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Old Metal Bar Steward, brought to you by 25 Years Later Media and the Ruminations Radio Network. I am the Old Metal Bar Steward himself, Neil Gray, and before we get into the tales of my sordid past and my views and opinions on the world of rock and metal, it's time for a little housekeeping. If you've been following the show, or if you're a virgin listener, then it's safe to say that I don't pull my punches on any subject. Now, I think that this makes for a very entertaining program, but there's always a chance that somebody out there is going to get offended by what I say, and if they do, then I don't want anyone getting in the shit for it. So with that in mind, here's a brand new disclaimer I'm going to have to crowbar into each show every week. The opinions expressed in tombs are mine and mine alone and in no way reflect the opinions or thoughts of 25 Years Later Media or the Rumination Radio Network. So, if you want to sue somebody, then sue me. And as I don't have jack shit to start with, good fucking luck with that. Right, let's get into it, shall we? As the great bard William Shakespeare once wrote, probably, the 1960s were some crazy-ass times. It was a time of social and political upheaval. There was the civil rights movements, the clusterfuck of Vietnam, and thousands upon thousands of hippies across the world stinking the place up with patchouli oil, joysticks, and pop. Yet, in the middle of all this madness and liberation, music managed to hit the kind of plateau that hadn't seemed possible a decade earlier, when the industry was full of rocking robins and Elvis shaking his wang on national TV. Sure, there were diamonds in the rough, such as Little Richard and Johnny Cash, but when Bobby Darren's song about taking a bath turned out to be one of the biggest sellers of the time, you can pretty much say that the fiddies were an absolute waste of space. Fortunately, the 60s made up for it and then some. The amount of groundbreaking bands and artists that came out of this period is still second to none. Hendrix, Zeppelin, Cream, Janis Joplin, The Doors, Bob Dylan, the list goes on and on. Yet still for me, the most important group of this era are the ones that rarely get the recognition they deserve. When most people were just happy to talk about a revolution, these guys were looking to start one. They formed their own White Panther Party to try and bring down the establishment. They created their own religion, Zenta, to attack the status quo head-on. They were punk before punk. They were metal before metal. They were the fucking MC5. If you've been listening to me ramble on, you'll know that music has played a huge part in my life, and if you haven't, then I highly suggest that when you finish listening to this, you go and listen to the other episodes. This is down to the fact that every artist I adore has always been linked to a seminal moment in my life in one way or another. Whether that was going through the growing pains of my teenage years, having my heart broken for the millionth time, maybe it was some of the darkest or moments of addiction and depression that helped make me who I am today, there's always been a point that I can turn around and say, yeah, that's when the love affair started. But with the MC5, I can't do that. They've just always been there. As I've stated before, this stems from my asshole stepdad and his record collection. I'm not sure how old I was, but I clearly remember looking through it when he and my mum were out drinking one night and stumbling across Kick Out The Jams. It was tucked somewhere between Nazareth and Uriah Heep. It was a cover that drew me in. It was this insane collage of five guys obviously in the throes of some Nirvana that I was too young to understand. All sweat, hair and passion. It was like it was alive in my hands. I had to have it. So as surreptitiously as I could, I snuck it upstairs before the folks staggered back through the door 
slipped on my headphones and dropped the needle onto the grooves. It blew my fucking mind. Brothers and sisters, the time has come for each and every one of you to decide whether you are going to be the problem or whether you are going to be the solution. This sound of a call to arms was followed by Wayne Kramer's opening riff to Rambling Rose, and it was enough to take my breath away. But when the rest of the band joined in with the kind of venom usually reserved for a snake pit, and Kramer hit that opening line with his falsetto, I was a full-on convert to the cause. But that wasn't all. When I heard, right now, right now it's time to kick out the jams, motherfuckers! I knew I'd found my new musical home. There's not a bad track on that entire album, which became clear to me as the eight tracks progressed. By the time the notes had dripped out of my speakers on the far out closer Starship, it was obvious, even to a rather young me, that the MC5 would always be a part of my life in one way, shape or form. However, it wouldn't be until I reached an age where the history of the groups I was listening to became as important as their music that I discovered the MC5 had a far broader scope of influence on the majority of the bands I followed with a passion. And not just that, their mandate to the people was as woven into the fabric of their songs as their screaming guitar work, their pounding rhythms and Rob Tyner's incredible vocals. Formed by childhood friends Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith, the MC5 wouldn't find their niche in life until Rob Tyner joined them in 1964. They had originally approached him to become their manager, stroke bass player. But it was his presence on stage and his amazing voice that convinced them that he'd be wasted in these dual roles and instead talked him into becoming their singer. He was also responsible for the change of their name, deciding that the MC5 would help to reflect their Detroit roots. But that wasn't all he brought to the table. Tyler was heavily into the left-wing political scene that was taking hold in the mid-60s, and it would be this influence that would help transform the group from a great band into a great band with a manifesto. In 1965, the classic MT5 lineup was completed when Michael Davis and Dennis Thompson joined the course, and they would take the Detroit music scene by storm, playing the kind of shows that left those in attendance feeling as if they'd been in an all-out war at the end of each night. This was down to the fact that nobody played harder, louder, or faster than the MC5. All the band knew how to do was attack, and they would throw themselves into every performance as if it was their last. As Robert Bixby wrote, it was like they were in possession of a catastrophic force of nature that the band could hardly control. Here was a band who would walk on stage with rifles, though they were unloaded, and would finish their set with a sniper shooting Rob Tyner dead. They sure as shit weren't for the faint of heart. By 1968, they've released three singles on the AMG label, including the sensational Looking At You, and they've been such a smash during their East Coast support tour that they've blown none other than cream off the stage every night and have been praised to the rafters by Rolling Stone magazine. But what they really needed was an album. Electra came calling, the boy signed up, and Kick Out The Jams was the result. Yet, what should have been their crowning moment was mired in controversy. It seems strange in this day and age when nearly every other word on a rap record is either a profanity or the M-bomb, but the use of motherfuckers saw the MC5 deep in the brown stuff. It saw Hudson's department store in their home city flat out refuse to stop the record, which, in turn, saw the band take out a full pay advert in the fifth estate that read, kick out the jams, motherfucker, and kick in the door if the store won't sell the albums on Electra. 
fuck Hudson's. As funny as that was, what wasn't amusing was that they went ahead and did this without telling Electra. As you can imagine, Hudson didn't find this amusing at all, and neither did Electra when the store stopped stocking any of the bands on their label. This act of rebellion suddenly found the MC5 without a home. This wouldn't be the only trouble they would face during this time, as their manager was a walking target for the authorities. John Sinclair was a poet and activist who was heavily influential in the White Panther Party and the aforementioned Fifth Estate Underground magazine. Now, considering this was during a time where anyone challenging the greater powers was automatically placed on J. Edgar Hoover's shit list, it was only a matter of moments before he fell foul to the full extent of the law. Having already been busted on a few occasions, the heat that Sinclair brought on the band became too much for them. They parted ways in 1969, and a few months later Sinclair would offer a couple of joints to an undercover narc and find himself facing 10 years in jail. The band was far from saints in this department, and their copious intake of drugs would start to take its toll over the next few years but they still managed to crank out two of the most influential albums ever heard during this period. Back in the USA is considered the first ever punk album by anyone with ears. It's full of short, punchy songs that all but abandon the more lengthy experimental tracks to their debut. The MC5, on the other hand, weren't big fans of the production on the record, handled by John Landau, as they were convinced he was trying to mould them in his own image, but the fact remains that it's still a bloody good record. To quote Lemmy, in a time of terrible manufactured music, back in the USA was rock and roll untreated. They followed it up in 1971 with High Times, an album that would become the blueprint for all hard rock albums for the rest of the decade. It's a fantastic record, and saw the boys revert to their longer format of old. Sadly, it would also prove to be their last venture in the studio together. By now, heroin was a real problem. Michael Davis was the first to go, being kicked to the curb when his addiction became a problem. And it got to the point where only Kramer and Smith would be left to limp along under the MC5 banner. In 1972, they reformed for a farewell show, but the grand ballroom that had once been a mecca for thousands of MC5 fans had less than 100 in attendance to see them off. It was all too much for Kramer, who walked off stage after a couple of songs. Rob Tyler would be first of the five to pass away in 1991 from a heart attack. Fred Sonic Smith would follow suit in 1994 and Michael Davis would die of liver failure in 2011. But their lives should be celebrated for what they brought to the world, not mourned. The MC5 are just as important today as they were when they parted ways 48 years ago, and their music is still an assault on the senses that has rarely been bettered. They helped push the Detroit music scene to the fore, were instrumental in getting Iggy and the Stooges signed and believed so heavily in what they were doing that they became the musical mouthpiece for the White Panther Party. So committed to the cause were they that they once played an anti-war demonstration, which in itself is nothing unusual considering the era. But when none of the other artists on the bill turned up for fear of police reprisals, the MC5 played for eight fucking hours straight. I feel that it is no exaggeration to say that the MC5 had more revolutionary zeal in their guitar picks the most performers of that decade did in their entire souls. And remember, when life does get a little too much for you brothers and sisters, and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, then there's always times to kick out the jams, motherfuckers! Now it's time for my weekly look at the news. It's been a bit quiet over the past seven days, but your old metal bar steward is nothing if not stubborn, 
and he's trawled the internet in search of stories to express his opinions on. For a change, I'd like to start with something that I won't be sticking the boots to. As we all know, we're living in the strangest of times, and the COVID-19 pandemic has hit every single one of us one way or another. From the loss of loved ones to the loss of jobs, this fucking disease has been a grade-A asshole that just refuses to fuck off. It's affected every walk of life, and nowhere is this more true than those behind the scenes, the men and women whose careers are dependent on bands being out on the road. Fortunately, a fund has been set up called Roadie Relief, which you can visit by going to roadierelief.org, and they've done some brilliant work taking donations and handing out money to those who were locked down with no chance of getting back to work until they start opening venues again. I wrote an article covering this on the main 25 Years Later site where I had the privilege to talk to Eddie Rocker. He explained in great detail just how the current crisis has affected him personally and how much of a great help Roadie Relief has been. And things have gotten even better as they are currently running a silent auction over on 32auctions.com forward slash roadie relief 2 where you can bid on all kinds of wonderful items denoted by some of the biggest names in rock and metal. Kiss, Boo Fighters, Korn, Bon Jovi, it seems that everyone and their grandma wants to help out in whatever way they can. And you can get your hands on some priceless items for your favourite bands. So head on over to the site as soon as you can, slap some cash down for a very worthwhile course. After all, when this madness is finally at an end, it'd be great to have some live music to go back to. And talking of COVID, Perry Farrell has joined a long list of rock stars like David Coverdale of Whitesnake and Rob Halford of Judas Priest in getting their vaccination. This came as somewhat of a surprise to me as I didn't realise that the Jane's Addiction singer fell into the over 50 category. In fact, I actually had to look it up. And when it was confirmed, it took me a minute to figure out that I wasn't still 28, like I am apparently in my head. And the time has moved on for both myself and my favourite bands, which kind of bummed me out for about an hour. Anyway, that aside, I'm glad to see that people like Pharrell are getting the jab, and hopefully it'll convince any metalheads who aren't sure whether they should or not to get the fucking thing done for everyone's sake. In fact, talking of the vaccine and Rob Halford, he announced earlier this week that he's had his second dose with a simple Instagram picture with the word DONE underneath it. Now, if the metal god getting his shit sorted out doesn't inspire you to do the same, then there is no hope for the human race. And on the subject of the metal god, he recently gave an interview with France One in which he said that he never really wanted to leave Judas Priest back in 92. I'll be the first to admit that when the two did part ways, I was stunned and I don't think I was the only one. I've always thought that if a singer leaves a band that has mainly been associated with that style of singing, then the group should really call it a day. Whenever anyone is replaced who is such an intricate part of the sound, never really works. Maiden got lucky, Deanna was only around for two albums, and they hadn't even come close to the heights they would achieve under Bruce Dickinson. But the norm in these situations is that they plod on with a subpar replacement and end up being nothing more than a tribute act. And in Priest's case, that's exactly what they became. Hiring Tim Ripper Owens, who was an, actually in a cover band of Priest, before he landed the gig. It would take 10 long years before bridges were mended and Halford would take his right place at the head of the beast. But according to the man himself, it could have all been avoided if they'd just taken a break after the painkiller tour 
that, and as he's admitted, he had a bit of a metal diva moment. Alice Cooper has been talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and according to the Master of Macabre, Priest, Maiden and Motorhead should all be inducted. Now, I love Alice, and he's got a point. How can you have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without some of the most influential artists who ever grace music? But I'm not that sure it really matters. I've always been amazed that some people got together and decided that they were going to choose who should be considered a true legend. I mean, who the fuck let these assholes appoint themselves the keepers of sacred music? Is that what it takes? Just saying that you're going to make these decisions? If that's the case, I'd like to tell you all that I'm starting up my own Hall of Fame and you can stick your Elvis Presley up your ass. Now, I'm with Dee Snyder and Bruce Dickinson on this. As the Twisted Sister frontman said, they are a bunch of arrogant, elitist assholes who look down on metal. And as the voice of Maiden put it so beautifully, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an utter and complete load of bollocks. And finally, as you may have gathered, I'm a huge fan of Murderhead. So any news on the band and on the main man Lemmy will always find a place on my show because it's my fucking show and I can talk about whatever I want. So you can imagine my glee when I read how Lemmy had some of his ashes put into bullets and sent to his closest friends after his death. This is a fucking epic move and proves that even beyond the grave, Lemmy can still have me smiling like the Cheshire Cat. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There will never be another Lemmy and though I never had the pleasure of meeting the man, I still miss him greatly. So there it is. Another week, another episode of the Old Metal Bar Steward. I've been your host, the old metal bastard with himself, Neil Gray, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show. Brought to you by 25 Years Later Media and the Ruminations Radio Network. And you know the drill by now. When you turn off my dulcet tones, head on over to the main 25 Years Later site, as well as its sister sites, Horror Obsessive and Sports Obsessive, and get your eyeballs some top-notch reading. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network as they have you covered no matter what your ear holes are craving. I'll be back here in seven days' time with more news, reviews, opinions, and tales of my sordid past. So until then, stay safe and stay metal, you filthy animals. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Red Rum. All things horror, from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out. But hurry. The killer's behind you! <laughs>